Hello, and welcome to the Beef Cattle Health and Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Campbell. I'm a veterinarian and a professor at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing researchers, veterinarians, and nutritionists on topics related to beef cattle health and production from a Canadian perspective. This week, my guest is friend and colleague, Dr. John McKinnon, who is a nutritionist and a professor emeritus from the Department of Animal and Poultry Science at the University of Saskatchewan. Our topic for this first episode is all about the basics of feed testing. Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome uh, my first guest to the podcast uh, today, Dr. John McKinnon, a former colleague and a professor emeritus uh, from the Department of Animal Science at the University of Saskatchewan. So welcome, John. Glad to have you here. Oh, thank you, John. Good to be here. Good. Well, today our topic for the day is feed testing, and I, I started off by looking up some results from the 2017 Western Canadian Cow-Calf Productivity Survey, and in that one, only about 38% of producers uh, test their feed annually. About almost two-thirds said they feed test occasionally. In our latest uh, Canadian Cow-Calf Surveillance Project, we asked producers across Canada uh, who, who was currently using feed test, and 62% said they were doing it, so pretty similar to that second result. That probably means they feed test occasionally. So why do we, you know, we, we talk about this all the time at, at producer meetings. Why do we think feed testing is so important? Why do, how do we, why do we want to convince those other 40% that aren't using it to use it? That, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's three really good reasons for, uh, uh, for feed testing and, and encouraging producers to feed test. The first is, you know, we're, we're raising cattle for, for specific uh, production goals. Uh, we want to maintain them over the course of a winter. Uh, if, they're, if they're pregnant cows, we want to make sure they're, we're targeting the, their nutrient needs for pregnancy, particularly as we get later into uh, uh, gestation. Uh, we got growing calves. We've got uh, uh, lactating animals. We've got animals in backgrounding and finishing operations. And we've got those animals there for a purpose. We got them there to target specific production goals. And the only way we can do that is to ensure that they get the right amount and the right quality of feed. And uh, the feed test can, can provide us with the, the nutrient quality of the, of the feeds we have on hand. And uh, it really allows us to, to meet those production goals. So, so that's the first reason. Uh, the second one is that when you look at the the feeds that are out there today, in the last couple of years in particular, they're awful expensive, particularly when you start looking at, at energy and protein feeds. Uh, so we don't want to be paying any more than we have to. We don't want to be going out and bringing in uh, supplemental feed if we don't need it. And so a feed test can uh, really help us uh, fine-tune what our needs are in terms of supplemental feed and, and help us save some money that way. And I think the third one is more of an animal welfare issue. And certainly in Western Canada, uh, our animals have um, uh, uh, challenges, if you will, in, in, in facing the winter. Uh, we get into stretches of minus 30, minus 40 degrees with wind chills. Uh, and, you know, if we're not careful, those animals can lose condition really quickly out there. And if we don't know what we're feeding them, it can just, it, you know, make the problem worse. So knowledge of the feeds that you have on hand 
can really help you meet those animals' needs. And so I think those three reasons are, are, are key to why producers should be contesting. Yeah, that's great. And, and this past winter was, was a pretty unusual one, especially in many parts of Western Canada with the drought we had, and we had a lot of unusual feedstuffs that people weren't used to feeding that make that even more important oh, exactly. that year. Yeah, yeah. And, and we did see some... Uh, some significant animal welfare issues, uh, probably as a result of of the drought, and there's areas still that are that are going to have to deal with that uh, in this upcoming year. So, so let's say we've decided to feed test. Uh, you know, let's talk about how do we collect the samples for for doing that because it's pretty important to get a representative sample so we get a little more accurate test on our on our results so let's talk about baled feed first so what what would you do if you got a bunch of bales uh, you want to test them what's the best way to sample those okay I think uh, what's important particularly with when we're looking at um, you know either square bales or round bales that that we, we keep a lot or 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 the bales that are coming from a given field separate um, and we sample them separately. Uh, you know, different fields can be taken off at different maturity. They can be come off at different uh, uh, moisture levels. They could be different varieties of, of grasses uh, uh, that comprise the bales. So there's, we want to keep that variation to a minimum if we can. So if, if we've got uh, a stack of bales that are coming off a given field, uh, typically what we say is to, um, to sample anywhere from 15 to 20 of those bales, taking a core sample, you know, ideally with with a, a core uh, uh, that that you have attached to a drill, just for the ease of of getting those samples. Um, do it randomly. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to just go to the first 15 bales that you see, uh, but try to get a random sample of of that stack of bales, and just to make sure that you you're collecting that in in a consistent manner. Okay. How about how about silage? So let's say I put up some silage for my cows for the winter. How how would I go about getting a good sample to um, send in for my silage? So silage is a is a little trickier. Um, when, when you look at when you look at the silage, I, I think there's 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 two things that you you need to be concerned about. I, I think you need to be concerned about what's going into the pit. Um, and how you access a representative sample of that. And then you want to monitor changes in that silage composition as you feed out the pit. So uh, if, we, if we look at uh, the, the latter one first, uh, how do we get a sample of, of that silage that we're feeding out? Um, you know, there's, I guess, a, two ways you could do it. I, I'm not too keen about the first. We could go to a... Um, uh, a covered pit, and and we could, you know, uh, uh, depending on the size of it, obviously, but uh, we could try to core down into the into the pile. You know, where we'll be breaking through the the seal on the on the plastic. Uh, if we have a long enough probe, we can get down past uh, where some of the the poor quality silage is and into the deeper deeper silage. And if we go across that, the you know the the surface of that pit. Uh, in a random fashion, doing that, uh, we could get we could get samples of uh, of that pile that would be representative of of uh, of what's going to be fed. But but really, the issue is is how do you get 
a sample from the bottom, the middle, the top of that pile, and that's difficult using that. I think the, the better way to do that is to be sampling the face of the pit as you're feeding it out. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple ways of doing that as well. Uh, if, if you're going to have a, a, a grab sample that you're taking with your hand or, or you're going to probe the face of that pit with, with a core, basically what you want to do is probably take off the first six to eight inches of the face of that pit so you're removing any uh, uh, dried out silage, any uh, silage that's been um, uh, subjected to aerobic fermentation, if you will, uh, because that uses up some of those nutrients that you'd be testing for. So scrape off the first six inches, then either get your grab samples or probe into the face of that uh, pit. And, you know, go across the face of the pit. Uh, people talk about a W fashion where, where you kind of sample at the top and come down, go up, back down, and then, then back up on the far side of the face. Keep in mind that there is some danger uh, um, standing under the face of a pit, and uh, particularly on some of these big feedlot silage piles that are 20 feet high or whatever, uh, you could have some issues with silage coming down on top of you. So you, you want to be careful of that. The other way... Uh, to sample that face and to get away from that safety factor or, or to incorporate the safety factor uh, would be to have uh, a front-end loader uh, or uh, their face scraper to bring down a pile of that silage that they're going to feed that day, sample that fresh silage, and uh, you would get away with your sample and then they can get on with, with feeding it. So that's the second way. The third way, uh, which really would address getting a handle on what you're putting into that uh, silage pile, would be to sample green chop uh, of the forage that's being packed. So every load that comes in or every second load that comes in, you could grab a handful of the silage, put it in a bucket, uh, collect that sample, and uh, you can analyze it for moisture, you can get it analyzed for nutrients, uh, you could do particle size separation, particularly for dairy operations. <clears throat> and uh, that is a good way of knowing what you're going in, what's going into the pit. You, ha you have to keep in mind that fermentation changes it a little bit, but not a lot. Uh, dries out a little bit uh, because of the heat of fermentation. Uh, protein solubility changes. But crude protein content, fiber content, starch content really doesn't change because of fermentation. So... So that's a good way of really knowing what you've got stored in that pit. Okay, so silage is a little more complicated to sample for sure. What, what about grain? It's probably a little more straightforward that way. Again, you want to get a representative sample. So how do you do that? Uh, it, it, it's true, it's, it's, it's easier. Um, I guess it comes down to the type of operation that I think is, is important here. And it, just think of the case of big feedlots that have got semi-loads coming in every day. They're using them up almost every day. By the time you get an analysis back, you really don't, the feed's probably gone or the grain's probably gone. So what a lot of those big feedlots will do is they'll have a protocol in place where they will check for moisture. They will do bushel weight uh, on each load that comes in. They'll do visual inspection for uh, uh, ergot and dawn, uh, particularly ergot. Uh, and they'll have, uh, you know, protocols of what they'll accept and what they won't accept in terms of, of those parameters that they're checking for. 
if you're a cow-calf operation, a backgrounding operation where you know you're bringing in some grain or you've grown some grain, uh, that you pretty much would have enough to feed over the course of a winter. Uh, you could uh, grab a sample as that grain's being unloaded uh, from a truck or being uh, augered into a bin, and you could have that uh, tested for for moisture and protein. Um, you could do an energy value on it as well. You could do your own bushel weight. You can do uh, visual inspection for ergot um, uh, just to uh, to get a feel for, for what that grain looks like. Okay. What about uh, the cow-calf producer that's kind of doing some sort of extended grazing who might want to sample some swaths or maybe standing corn or something like that to try to get an idea of that? Is that, is that possible or is that pretty hard to do? It's probably the hardest of, of the, the four different types of feed that we've talked to at this point, um, simply because by the time you start collecting these samples, you can, you can have like a volume of material that, that uh, would overwhelm not, not just yourself, but also the, the feed testing lab itself. But, you know, if, if you're looking at these swaths, I think you, you, you again have to recognize that um, we're, uh, we want to get a representative of the field that those animals are going to be grazing in. Uh, basically, uh, you can go out, you can collect these swaths, uh, um, uh, samples of the swaths, have a sharp pair of uh, shears with you. Uh, you can chop them up into smaller pieces uh, and uh, just get a number of representative samples from around the field and then uh, you know, try to cut them up into smaller, maybe one-inch pieces and mix that up to get that sample. Sort of the same thing with standing corn. I know some producers will actually have gone to the uh, uh, extent where they've got uh, PTO-driven uh, corn chippers or, or wood chippers that they can put that corn through, and, and that can do a pretty nice uh, job of, of processing to, just to get it to a, a particle size that you can submit it to a lab for, for, um, uh, for analysis. So one of the things I always struggle with is, is, you know, there's a lot of samples and it, they all cost money. Can we pool feed samples to sort of send them to the lab? So what, what are the pros and cons of that? Uh, obviously, one of the pros is save a bit of money, but what are, the, what are maybe the cons of trying to pool feed samples? So I say, oh, I got these three different kinds of hay and I know I'm going to feed you know, two bales of this and one bale of that, and so I'll just send it in in that sort of ratio. What's what's the downside of that? Well, I think the downside of it is is that you're you're going to be uh, by pooling like that. You're 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 really starting to to come up with an average of a feed sample that that's that's there uh, that you're you're not taking into account some of the maturity differences that might be there. Uh, and some of the variety differences that you might have between different grass types uh, or legume types. And really, the, the, what it sort of uh, robs you of, if you will, it robs you of the opportunity to really strategically feed some of these feeds. So if, if you know what you've got and you've got some higher quality hay, higher protein hay, uh, maybe with a little bit more legume in it, that you could feed later in gestation, uh, when the cow's requirements are higher, 
that nutrient test is where you've kept it separate is going to allow you to do that. So um, I, I think you know, it's, you know, you you want to use some judgment when you do that. Um, uh, like I say, if if we can get a sample from a from a given field, uh, keep those bales separate, core them, and uh, uh, know what that field quality is, that's going to give us more information than just taking a uh, a number of different fields, putting them together, and yeah, and I always think that if I, if I say I'm going to feed it at this ratio, these bales and that bale at these ratios, and then all of a sudden that doesn't work out and uh, the requirements are higher, it's pretty hard for me to sort that out then at a later stage. Yeah. It's a little different with silage because, you know, silage is, is often a mixture of a different fields and, and whatnot that's gone in there. Uh, so again, that's why you, you really want to test as you're going back through the pit with, with silage. So we got our samples, we're going to send them to the lab, and it can be a little confusing about what to ask for at the lab. One of the options is always, they always give you is wet chemistry versus NIR. So what's, what's the difference between those, those two terms? What's NIR and wet chemistry, and which one should we be asking for? Certainly the, the NIR is an innovation that's probably commercially available over the last 10 to 15 years on, on a fairly widespread basis. And Basically, uh, you know, it's near-infrared reflectance technology that um, uh, basically feed samples are scanned uh, and based on the characteristics of that scan and how it relates to a, to a feed database, uh, they can uh, uh, very rapidly predict uh, the nutrient specs in that feed uh, versus wet chemistry where samples have to be uh, dried down, ground, uh, and then specific chemical analysis carried out individually. So as opposed to one scan that's done uh, immediately, wet chemistry takes quite a bit longer. Um, the NIR analysis, the, the, when you look at the feed companies that are, or feed uh, uh, analysis companies that are offering it, you know, they, they've been around a while now with the technology. They've developed extensive databases for many of the common forages, whether it's grass and, or legume haze, the silages. Um, uh, they have extensive databases that can be used uh, to predict the nutrient content of a given sample that comes in that is of similar uh, variety, similar... Uh, characteristics as, as the database. Um, with NIR, you've got to remember it is a prediction, okay? So there is a certain level of, of, uh, of accuracy uh, with it that uh, is perhaps not as high as, as wet chemistry. So wet chemistry would be kind of in quotes our, our gold standard. Uh, and within a, a certain margin of error, we would expect wet, wet chemistry to to really hit the mark in terms of the analysis. Um, with what types of feeds you use with one versus the other, NRIR is really good with forages. Um, some of the complex feeds like screenings, total mixed rations, um, supplements, distillers grains, where you want a complete chemical profile, you would be looking at wet chemistry as opposed to NIR. Wet chemistry can also be used for 
dry forages, wet chemistry, or dry forages and, and silages um, with high degree of accuracy. It's just that the NIR is cheaper and faster for those feed types and uh, relatively accurate, okay? When you look at the, the wet chemistry, um, again, you can look at moistures, you can look at protein, you can look at protein breakdown uh, in terms of um, uh, degradable protein, soluble protein. Uh, you can look at the fiber fractions. You, know, you can get very detailed analysis of the nutrient content of that feed. Yeah, and so if you have some kind of weird, unusual feed that you're trying to use in a particular year, probably NIR is not the best bet for that one. You'd probably be better to go with wet chemistry because they wouldn't have the database on that on that particular strange feed that you might have to use this year because, because feed resources were limited or something like that. Exactly. So when you look at, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of screenings that are being fed, pulse screenings, uh, flax screenings, et cetera, that are out there. Um, NIR would not be appropriate for them. Um, you know, if you look at wheat distillers grains or, or corn distillers grains with, with high protein, high fat content, that's gone through some form of heating, wouldn't be appropriate for that either. So the wet chemistry for those kind of more complex feeds is, is the best way to go. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds because every lab, lab is a bit different and they often have some specific packages for forages and grain that you can pick that are pretty basic packages. What are, what are sort of the key components that we need to look for in the, in the lab testing that, that we're going to ask for? That varies a little bit between uh, beef versus dairy operations. Uh, with with uh, dairy operations, um, some of the more recent advances in, in dairy nutrition, uh, people are, are quite interested in fiber digestibility, NDF digestibility, the extent of, of uh, the NDF digestibility over uh, various incubation periods. Uh, and so some of the newer analysis that you can get would include in situ and in vitro digestibility of the fiber fractions. Uh, on the beef side, we, we don't tend to go that uh, direction uh, to the same degree that you see with, uh, with dairy operations. With, with beef operations, I think uh, whether it's um, uh, NIR or wet chemistry, the, the type of analysis that I like to see, certainly dry matter and moisture content, crude protein content, uh, depending on the type of feed, I'd like to see the breakdown between degradable and soluble protein in that feedstuff. Um, I like to see the fiber fractions, so the, the acid detergent and the neutral, neutral detergent fiber fractions, because that's given me an indication of the maturity of that uh, forage. Um, and um, um, uh, then moving on to the mineral package, and, and I think that's, I'll just back up a step uh, with the mineral package and, and NIR. Um, some of the, the, the companies can offer uh, NIR for some of the, the macro minerals, so calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, uh, with, with a, a relatively high degree of prediction accuracy. But when you get into some of the trace minerals, you really have to rely on weight, wet chemistry for an accurate analysis of the trace minerals. So when, when it comes to requesting that type of a package, 
I, I would like to see the, the mineral package done, particularly trace minerals by wet chemistry. So just going back to the question, uh, going, going through the protein fractions, the fiber fractions, uh, I'd like to see the, the macro mineral package as well as the trace mineral package. Um, there's a, um, the final thing I'd like to look at there is energy prediction. And, and I, that's really important. And just depending on the lab, we're really depending on, or the package on how it's done. So historically, we've, we've predicted um, uh, the energy content of forage is based on, on the acid detergent fiber content of, of that forage. So there's a number of equations out there, whether they're grass haze or legume haze or, or silages that, that you could just plug in an ADF value and you get a prediction of, uh, of the uh, TDN content of that forage, which you know is, was fine for, for the time, but uh, there are predictions, and, and over time we refined how to come up with more accurate predictions. And some of the analysis that you can carry out today, you can get what's called a, a summative approach to energy prediction. And basically that's looking at uh, um, a combination of protein analysis, fiber analysis, lignin analysis, uh, and how uh, uh, well, fat analysis and, and the ash analysis, and how those different uh, components come together to give you a, a prediction for uh, the energy content of that feedstock. And, and that's really important to get, to get at. Yeah, protein and energy are just so important and energy seems to be the often the limiting factor in a lot of our Western Canadian beef cow diets, wouldn't you say? Oh, definitely, especially as you get into winter, for sure. Yeah, so um, anything else? You know, if we're, if we're sending it off to the lab, you know, what about uh, some of those other things you mentioned, ergot and mycotoxins earlier? Are they something we need to worry about? Um, definitely. Um, and there's a variety of these what you might call specialty analysis that you might look at. Uh, I think it's a no-brainer for, for a lot of our green feeds, uh, our silages, um, particularly if it's uh, a drought year or early frost, is, is to get a nitrate analysis on these forages. Uh, you can get two types of nitrate analysis. You can get just a um, kind of a yes or no answer that it's present. Uh, if, it's, if it's present, then you better send that sample off to, to get a quantitative analysis, or you could just get a quantitative analysis done for nitrate right off the bat. Uh, and that'll tell you uh, a percentage value or a parts per million value that uh, you can use to assess the safety of that forage. So nitrates is important. Um, ergot's important, particularly with certain types of feeds. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to feed screenings and Particularly, uh, cereal screenings can be heavily contaminated with ergot, and ergot is nothing that you want to fool around with. Um, uh, abortions, you know, uh, slough extremities, lameness, all kinds of issues that you don't want to you don't you don't want to see. So, uh, if you're going to feed uh, um, that type of a product, uh, rye cereal grain, keep your eye out for for ergot, uh, wheat can be contaminated with it. If you, if you do see it, get these samples analyzed. There's specialty labs um, uh, across Western Canada. We have one at the University of Saskatchewan that can do ergot 
as well as other microtoxins such as uh, uh, Dawn or vomitoxin, which not as critical maybe as uh, ergot, but still important to know if, if you have it. Another one that uh, you might see as a specialty analysis would be um, sulfur. Uh, some, uh, not in some cases, in many cases, we have issues with trace mineral uh, imbalance, uh, cases of polio pop up every now and then, uh, and getting water and feeds tested for, for sulfur content can be important in those type of cases. So a lot of specialty uh, analysis can be done uh, that can be preventative from a, from a health perspective. Yeah, and if you do get a result where maybe nitrates are high in one of your feed crops or something, you might be able to blend that out or deal with that some way then uh, so that you still can feed it, but you just don't want to make sure you're overloading them with nitrate altogether. So get our results back. John, we're, you know, uh, obviously we don't have time to talk about all the details of doing a ration analysis here, but who, who can you go to for help in sort of analyzing the results and coming up with your rations? Yeah, so this is really where I guess the, the rubber hits the ro road in terms of, of uh, what these results are, are telling you and how you can use them. And, you know, if, if you're comfortable yourself, if, 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 you, if you've got a, you know, a feel for, for the importance of these nutrients and, and for um, uh, the role that they play in, in meeting the animal's uh, nutrient requirements for, for maintenance and, and for different productive purposes, um, there are tools that, that you can use um, you know, BCRC, for example, has on their website um, um, uh, a single feed um, uh, analysis tool that, that you can put in the, the, the um, uh, nutrient specs of that feed. So a single feed, and it would tell you how that, for example, alfalfa grass hay would, a certain quantity would meet the needs of a, of a you know, a 1,300-pound cow for maintenance purposes. Um, there's a program like Cow Bites. I'm not sure it's being sold anymore. I think it's, it's being reviewed at this point in time in terms of, or, or revised. But a program like Cow Bites is, is, is really useful. Uh, again, as long as you're comfortable using it and, and have a little bit of knowledge uh, that uh, uh, how to use the outputs uh, of that program. Uh, it's a relatively simple program that you put in requirements or the type of animal that you're feeding. You put it in its environment. You put in your feeds, the nutrient specs of those feeds, and then you basically mix and match amounts to, to meet requirements. And so um, it, it can work very nicely, but it can lead you down the garden path if, if you're not comfortable with, with those results. Uh, then you can look at at professional uh, advice, um, there's feed companies with nutritionists, there's extension people with uh, provincial governments, there's uh, uh, consulting nutritionists, there's veterinarians that all have expertise in um, uh, formulating rations, in some cases using more sophisticated uh, formulation tools, least cost ration formulation uh, that cannot just meet requirements, but do so at least cost. So uh, certainly if, if you're not comfortable uh, with uh, using the results of your feed test, uh, consult professional advice and, 
and, and get their input. It, it can be money very well spent. Yeah, I think that's good advice, John. I know that uh, when I start to uh, play with some of those programs, I often have to go and talk to somebody like you to give me a hand and, and uh, uh, to help me out with the, with the details because it can be pretty confusing and you can go down the wrong path if you're not careful. So um, look around and see who you have available to you. That'll vary by province, whether there's uh, uh, provincial livestock specialists or, or whether you have to go... Uh, to a feed company or or your local veterinarian may be able to help you as well. So there's lots of different options there. Thanks so much for doing this today, John. I really appreciate your time and uh, be in touch. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you, John. Thank you. That's a wrap for our first episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guest, Dr. John McKinnon. Thank you as well to our sponsors, the Alberta Beef Producers and the Beef Cattle Research Council of Canada. Please consider subscribing so that you can automatically get future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Take care until next time.